Hello, and welcome to the Lasting Impact Wellness Podcast, where together we explore ways to help you optimize your health and achieve sustainable well being. No one deserves to live an unhealthy life because they are overtasked, overstimulated, and overwhelmed. I'm your co host, Dr. Laura Hayes, and we'll be joined by Dr. Parker Hayes as we explore new perspectives and strategies rooted in self awareness, deep connections, and science based practices designed to create lasting impact for you and those around you. Please keep in mind this podcast is for the purpose of education, introspection, and community connection and should not be mistaken for medical advice. Be sure to subscribe and share with others. Let's be well together. Hello and welcome to Lasting Impact Wellness, the podcast that helps you optimize your health and well-being through science-based practices, practical knowledge, and honest discussions. I'm your host today, Dr. Parker Hayes. And I'm Dr. Laura Hayes. In part one of this series, we introduce some of the leadership lessons we've learned and adopted over the years of practicing in an environment that many may call controlled chaos. We discuss the high-stress, high-stakes, intolerant environment in which we have practiced for so long. We talked about the lessons learned, not just from the traditional sources, but from the patients and their families themselves. We encourage you to go back and listen to that episode first, even as this one can stand alone. So the key lessons that we talked about in part one, let's just review those here for the listeners. But again, go back and listen if you haven't listened yet. The first thing we talked about was setting the tone and how you show up and that how you show up really matters. We talked about staying calm under pressure and how to do so, planning for the worst case scenario and the concepts of what needs to be addressed immediately or exigency versus contingency or planning for what may occur. We also reviewed how to observe with all of your senses. And lastly, how to turn it off and let things go or prepare for the next round of leadership challenges. So today we're going to proceed to three more topics that we feel are really important lessons for any leader. So Parker, are you ready to get started? Let's go. All right. So the scene in the emergency department, as I'm sure it is in many organizations, can be sometimes crazy appearing to the naked eye, but it does have a method to the madness, so to speak. So there's typically an overall leader on any given shift, and that person is the attending physician. But a lot of layers of professionals are present. There are nurses, respiratory therapists, social workers, nursing assistants, medics, patient transport personnel, x-ray techs, CT techs, patient advocates, and so on. And how these various factions or team members work together to achieve a common goal can vary dramatically. Assessing, diagnosing, and rendering care for individual patients who have presented with an emergency concern, that's the mission. All of these team members are rarely, if ever, in the same room at the same time, nor are they all in contact on a common radio frequency or message board or telepathy. So that brings us to our first lesson today. In the emergency department and any complex organization, open and maintain multidirectional lines of communication. Now, there are various hierarchies of leadership. There's accompanying or corresponding methods of communication therein. So terms that you may have heard like hub and spoke or a ladder with rungs, that might describe these communication methods. 
leadership and communication structures in which a superior communicates to a subordinate who then communicates to another subordinate on down a ladder in a chain of command type structure. We all know that structure pretty well. Hub and spoke refers more to a leader that's at the center, connected to various other entities by outgoing radius-like projections like the spokes on a wheel. And this analogy neatly lends itself to images of rolling and forward progress. But which is best and why? Well, there are certainly times in which a leader needs to give an unequivocal, straightforward order and expect that it gets done. Mm -hmm, For sure. That might fit well into the latter metaphor of communication. This happens in medicine, and certainly we would see parallel examples in law enforcement or tactical situations, military scenarios, and industrial or a corporate setting too. But many other times, including in the ER, open, well-maintained, and bi-directional modalities of communication are much more conducive to fulfilling the shared mission. What do I mean by that? Well, let's give some examples. In the emergency department, if we have a significant, say, trauma resuscitation, the patient may not arrive with warning, but if so, we have assembled some semblance of a team and resources into a resuscitation bay awaiting their arrival. Well, to interrupt for a moment, we're preparing for the worst case scenario, one of our lessons from our first podcast episode about this stuff, but go on. Someone is in charge, typically the attending doctor, but vital tasks will be completed in parallel and simultaneously by nurses and other staff present. Do we all know what we're doing and why? Even those assigned singular, almost rote tasks such as uh, hooking the patient up to the monitor benefit from understanding what we're trying to accomplish here. And further, those individuals may, especially if connected to the purpose of this assemblage, be able to offer input about significant mission threats. Others can troubleshoot and identify important changes in the conditions relative to the mission that sometimes the leader or others around them cannot. Right, but that only works if there's a safe and open line of communication to the leader from each of those people. That's right. Imagine this analogy. Picture two people mountain climbing, ascending a rock face together. They're attached to each other by a system of ropes for their safety as as climbers do. Now, above the two climbers, a large rock dislodges and falls toward the lead climber. If the lead climber sees this and takes evasive maneuvers and informs the climber below him who does the same, they might both be safe. Top-down communication has been successful. If, however, the trailing or lower climber spots the rock first, and does not have a method to communicate up to the leader, the lead climber may be the one who takes the hit. But roped together, both are going down together with their mission. In this analogy, if there was an intact method to communicate with a leader, everyone may benefit. 
Well, but in a big organization, everyone can't just be talking to one another without structure, right? There has to be some sort of structure. So how do we decide with whom we have to have an intact channel of communication? I mean, specifically, when we think about crazy, complex scenarios like an emergency department, who needs to have some method of direct communication in a hurry to the leader? Well, anyone who may spot the rock first. Well, and I think that this points out just something that, in my opinion, is really vital to organizational health and well-being, which is making sure that your team feels comfortable coming to you when an issue arises. This all has to do with communication and having people know that they can step forward. I mean, that's almost a death blow in your organization to have people feel intimidated or scared to speak up when they sense something is wrong or have a suggestion to make something better. But I digress here. Go on. One other thing that always strikes me about the hub and spoke versus ladder metaphors for methods of communication is that the line goes a lot closer to the edge or perimeter in the hub and spoke, whereas you have to go through so many rungs to get from one top portion of a ladder to the bottom. Yeah, that's true. I like well, I here's, that. A, here's a real-life medical example. Early in my training, I was present in a very dramatic code resuscitation with the placement of an extraordinarily difficult airway. CPR chest compressions were ongoing. It was very difficult to get IV access, and another person was attempting to put in a central line. Everyone was working on a, a young person who certainly was not, quote, supposed to die, quote, at this stage of life, who was facing this sudden dramatic threat to their life. And at that point, I recall that inexplicably things were not going well. The patient could not get their oxygen saturations up. They continued to code even though their heart was trying to beat and we had stemmed the tide of blood loss, we had done the appropriate mechanical maneuvers. It just wasn't working. And at that point, the wise and honestly kind attending who was running the resuscitation thoughtfully mused out loud that our lack of progress didn't make sense and ask the collective if anyone had any suggestions or input. Gathered in the corner of the room in matching new scrubs with a local school name on them was a group of early nursing students. And one stepped forward quietly and somewhat reluctantly and pointed out that the attachment of the oxygen supply tube wasn't pushed into the wall all the way and wondered if that was okay. Sure enough, adjustments were made. Oxygen began flowing. The patient's oxygen saturation picked up. And ultimately, the resuscitation was successful. The line of communication between the seemingly uninvolved or lowest member of a hierarchy to the leader was intact because the leader made it so to the benefit of their combined effort. Well, you always want your team members to feel like what they have to say matters. Even if sometimes it may not, because when it really does, you want to make sure that you're hearing it. It's up to the leader to do some triage. 
What about communication with yourself? As the leader, yes, we have to trust ourselves. You may have years of expertise and experience. You may have long ago left the realm of student and are now a master at your task with the requisite 10,000 hours or whatever it took to get you there. But to quote two seemingly very disparate sources of philosophy, first the Russian proverb, trust but verify. This was made famous in the United States, spoken by President Reagan with regard to Soviet policy. But in our case, it means to believe in one's foundation but constantly review something for its truth or veracity. And another of my favorite examples, although he meant something a bit more threatening in the song, I also adhere to Ice-T's admonishment to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Believe in what you're doing and the communication you're offering as a leader, but constantly review, at least internally, and keep those external lines of communication open for course correction to occur. And I think it's important to test the lines of communication and do that pretty often. So ensure that communication is coming and going in all directions. And, you know, this could be a simple hello, just being approachable to your team members, acknowledging their existence and just being a kind human. That goes a lot further than just niceties or platitudes. It really ensures that those lines of communication are intact to serve your organization's mission. So if you test them on minor issues, then they'll be open when major ones arise. And the more effectively you can communicate, the more agile you are. You can pivot, change directions, and then you stand a better chance of getting real-time feedback if the plan is not working or needs to be altered. Ask for suggestions at the right times, even as you restate your dedication to the overall direction. As I mentioned, Keeping those lines open, letting your team members know and really believe that what they have to say matters. And this might apply just as readily whether you're running a household, a platoon, a research team, or a product launch. I mean, good household organization is only as good as the communication. I mean, we talk about this a lot. Who's picking up the kids? Who's picking up the groceries? I mean, how can you share responsibility and delegate to other task leaders? If you don't want to forget your wife's birthday or your anniversary, involve the children or her best friend to help you recall. Well, you would never need to do that, let's be honest. Mm. So, for example, in my work world, and same for you, Parker, but if I want to know if my patient in room 18 is deteriorating from a respiratory standpoint, let's say, then I need to communicate with the nurse as a colleague that I'm concerned about this potential. I needed to ask him to let me know what his thoughts are. As an attending physician in the emergency department, I can't possibly monitor every patient under my charge at any given time. But facile communication with delegation allows me to come pretty close. Again, what my nurse has to say matters. So in part one, we talked about setting the tone. Well, there's no better illustration of the importance of this than the maintenance of these communication lines, which themselves are critical to any mission in a crazy organization, whether that's the emergency department or not. Okay, so speaking of chaos and completion of complex organizational mission-related tasks, that brings us to our second lesson, Laura. That lesson is 
don't depend on multitasking. Our brains are enormously complex things. We can accomplish so many different things consciously and subconsciously simultaneously. But is that the same as multitasking? I submit that it's not, and that while neuroscientists say there is to some limited degree in practice, I say there's no such thing as multitasking. What there is, however, is really rapid serial monotasking. Doing one thing, getting it done, and moving on to the next one in such rapid succession that it appears as though many things are occurring for you simultaneously. The other thing that there is, is engineering tasks to run in the background through delegation and communication while you attend to a chain of singular ones in your viewfinder. Oh my gosh, this is exactly parenting. Well, virtually every critical but complex organizational task has pre-flight checklists or protocols designed to make sure all elements are completed in a variety of different industries and settings despite changing circumstances. Few of us, if any, can unerringly complete every step every time. Emergency medicine is particularly prone to interruption, chaos, noise pollution, threat of violence, emotional challenge, time crunches, resource limitations. It's often an ergonomic nightmare in terms of one's position and physical comfort. And yet, it requires practitioners to have an expert working knowledge of the broadest base of medicine and to deal with those problems acutely right now. Studies on interruption and noise in the emergency department have been done. In 2008, my colleague Dr. Chisholm did a study at three different emergency departments where Docs were observed and their behaviors recorded for three-hour periods. It showed that emergency docs were caring for, in that study, on average about four new patients per hour, which is really a lot considering how sick some of these patients are and how little information we are often starting with. But they also measured the number of times that the doctor was interrupted, meaning to attend to a different focus than the task at hand. And secondly, if it lasted longer than 10 seconds or required them to fully shift to a different task, which was called a break in task and was a different survey measurement. On average, doctors across these three emergency departments were interrupted somewhere around 12 times an hour or every five minutes. But in addition to that, each hour, they experienced an additional seven break-in tasks where they suddenly were asked to do a different task from the one they had been doing and stick with that one. There were limitations to the study, but come on, 17 times an hour or about every three and a half minutes is a substantial interruption or break-in task in the chaos of the emergency department. It's a cacophony of sight, sound, and redirection there, but somehow it gets done. Well, honestly, as you say that, I know this was an 08 study, but just anecdotally speaking and in practice, I feel like it would be even more often than that now if we think about our current shifts, how many times we're interrupted. I mean, it's probably closer 
on average to every two minutes, I would say. That's crazy. Well, regardless of frequency, it's a lot. And again, somehow it gets done. And that somehow to me is because of honing the skill of rapid serial monotasking. And you should examine your own industry and your own hours as a leader and find ways to delegate activity to run in the background while you toggle from one leader-specific task in your current viewfinder to the next, decisively and rapidly. All right, Parker, I feel like we belabored that one enough. So that brings us to our third lesson, which is know the mission and don't get knocked off course. So we mentioned the protocolization or that you said the term pre-flight checklist, that approach to a lot of complex missions in a variety of industries. And usually even allowing for adaptability, you do those tasks the same way every time. And when you don't, that's when mistakes are likely to happen. There are so many examples in the emergency department where I can imagine myself right now where sometimes when I first started in my career, the nurses would look at me a bit skeptically. And now they understand and they know me well enough to know that when I have this type of patient who needs this type of intervention, then I am going to set up my room and the resources in the exact same way every single time. Because the moment that I don't do that, that's when something is going to go wrong. And that's when I won't be prepared. I definitely agree with that and have a very similar practice. And that extends for your preparation, as well as through your decision making about that patient encounter. Examples that occur for me in the emergency department are when we have the somewhat dreaded VIP show up. Ones that I have seen the hospital board member, the guy, this is real, wearing his American Bar Association name tag (laughs) from the plaintiff's attorney's section from the convention in town who arrives as a patient, the NBA player or the famous actor who arrives into your ER needing care, or the system changes suddenly even without a patient being there. The Secret Service has come into my ER because the president was going to be nearby and they wanted to impose their various policies and procedures on the ER without much notice, including supplanting our helicopter from the roof for theirs. People act weird in the presence of fame. And while usually that's just amusing, it can cause problems. But back to it, example, one of the tenets of trauma evaluations is exposing the patient fully to find injury and then covering him or her back up for warmth and comfort, of course, but never missing occult or even potentially critical injury in the interest of modesty. I recall that once a legendary race car driver was flown in and plunked into my trauma bay after a big wreck during a race. The driver's entourage, just doing their jobs, berated us and attempted to prevent us from removing, and definitely not cutting, any of his clothing, citing the expense of the fire retardant suit that he was wearing, even though he was confused and complaining of injury and pain. And we went round and round. Subsequently, we found a way around this and didn't deviate from the protocol and discovered his substantial injuries. But skipping steps or changing the protocol can result in falling off the rails in the direction of your mission. Now, this is not to say that leaders are not adaptable. 
In the communication section, we highlighted how new input from any source is critical to helping the leader direct the mission correctly. And this is also not to say that over-protocolized versions of decision-making will always be the best method, or that so-called adaptive unconsciousness or gut feeling is not a brilliant and reliable method of making decisions as well. The latter method includes physical and emotional cues too, and is sometimes, I've heard it described as one's internal computer running in the background. For experienced leaders, it's often employed. It's the basis of much psychological study. It was highlighted popularly in the book Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. I sometimes talk about the creep sign, which goes like this. I come out of a patient's room, and so far I haven't found anything really wrong with that patient. But something about it gives me the creeps. I call mine the heebies, as in the heebie-jeebies. I don't know which I like better. Either way, can't be ignored. I've learned to backtrack and listen to those feelings of any name and to start over at least once in search of finding that source of discomfort in my adaptive unconsciousness. But visceral-based leaders who are unaware of well-established protocols and the reasons for them stay unaware at their peril and to the peril of those they lead. Those with blind adherence to precedent and pedantic decision-making who ignore their own gut or feelings are also only using half their abilities. But regardless, you have to know the mission. What are you trying to accomplish? Are you attempting to really serve this patient or mollify a hospital donor? Don't get knocked off of what's really important. Okay, so what have we learned today? First, open and maintain multidirectional lines of communication. Who needs access to the leader? Whoever might spot the falling rock first. Trust but verify, or as Ice-T would say, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Remember when we talked about being an active listener, considering information in one's response rather than just waiting for one's turn to speak? If you don't remember that part of the conversation, go back and listen to our first Leadership Lessons podcast episode. Second, don't depend on multitasking. It may not even exist. Right, but engineering things through, as you mentioned, delegation and active communication, together with very rapid serial monotasking, that can achieve immensely complex goals, reliably. Third, know the mission and don't get knocked off course, whether by changing levels of chaos, noise, social relationships, or other less-than-mission-critical influences. Protocols and analyses are there for a reason, but so are your subconscious and experience-based reactions, and these all contribute to the best decision-making. The emergency department, with all of its faults, has provided a wellspring of instructive lessons in leadership, communication, and service. We continue to be humbled by it on a regular basis, but feel grateful if some of the lessons given to us can be shared with others across a variety of settings. Well, that's all for part two of Leadership Lessons from the Frontlines. Could you, your leaders, or your organization benefit from concepts like these? 
We'd love to hear from you how we can work together to help. Please reach out to learn more and join our community at LastingImpactWellness.com. Please take a moment right now to rate this podcast with five stars. If you have found it helpful, find someone who will benefit from this information and share it with them too. As always, we appreciate your time and your energy. I'm Dr. Parker Hayes. And I'm Dr. Laura Hayes. Let's be well together. Thank mm-hmm. you.